Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by director Brian De Palma. He's been making movies since the early 60s as a student at Columbia University. There, in New York, he said they wouldn't let undergraduates direct. And I had all these ideas. I knew how to take pictures. I'd photograph computers I designed for science fairs growing up. So I hawked my scientific equipment and bought a Bolex movie camera. And the rest was history some of which you've likely experienced. Sisters, Phantom of the Paradise, Carrie, Dressed to Kill, Scarface, Body Double, The Untouchables, Casualties of War, Carlito's Way, Mission Impossible. De Palma's singular career has often been examined and debated. Released in 1981, it stars John Travolta as a B-movie sound man who unwittingly records murder on tape. At the wrong place, at the wrong time, the evidence ensnares our protagonist in a dangerous, paranoid plot. Here's a clip from the trailer. It began with a sound that no one was ever supposed to hear. He's one of us all? Yes, he says he pulled a girl out of the car. I would like you to forget about her. the tire blew out. You're right, it was a shot. He recorded a murder. 
they say never happened. Brian De Palma's blowout. Now you hear it. Now you don't. As an aside, I really love when they used to do trailers like that. That deep, booming voice narrating the whole thing. I also love when they used to make films like Blowout. Even while talking to De Palma, it's hard to not get lost in the nostalgia of him. The golden era in which he came of age, the behind-the-scenes stories from films like Blowout, Carlito's Way, Get to Know Your Rabbit. This is not an exhaustive overview of De Palma's career. You don't capture 80 years of life in 45 minutes over Zoom. But if you'd like more after this episode, I'd seek out the documentary De Palma, directed by Jake Paltrow and Noah Baumbach. It's really excellent and uh, worth your time. For today, I want to thank Brian for coming on the show. He does not do many interviews, especially podcasts. So it means a whole lot that he decided to come on Talk Easy. If you've not seen Blowout or Carlito's Way or any of the films mentioned in this episode, you can find links to those in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. That's talkeasypod.com. And now, here is Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma, how are you doing right now? Fine. I'm in the country, uh, nice weather, the sun's out, very pleasant. We're sitting because right now is the 40th anniversary of Blowout, and I, and I figured we start here, if you don't mind. At the time, Pauline Kale and The New Yorker wrote, For the first time, De Palma goes inside his central character, and he stays inside. He has become so proficient in the techniques of suspense that he can use what he knows more expressively. It's as if he finally understood what the technique is for. This is the first film he has made about the things that really matter to him. How does that description land with you? It's a very uh, perceptive. I don't know if it's the first time I've made a film about things that matter to me, but it came from a very interesting idea, and I developed it into a whole scenario with characters that were full-blown. So it had a kind of emotional depth to it. If she is right about making a film about the things that matter to you, I'm curious, what were those things? I'm obviously very interested in visual storytelling, and this lent itself to tell a story a lot with just pictures and uh, not relying on dialogue to explain everything. The whole idea of this film came from a couple of things. One was when I was cutting a soundtrack for Footsteps. I think it was for Murder All Ahmad. There's a lot of footsteps in the graveyard. I realized what we were using to separate the sounds, which is known as Phil, was Lawrence of Arabia. Here, this one of the greatest films of all time is now Phil in the footsteps of the mix I'm preparing for Murder a la Mode. So that irony stayed with me 
And the other thing which starts the whole film off is when I was mixing uh, Dress to Kill and I talked to my sound mixer, I said, that effect of, sound, of wind in the trees, I've heard this. I mean, I've been working with the same sound guy for years and I kept on hearing the same wind in the trees. This is Dan Sable. Yeah, Dan Sable. And I said, Dan, get me some new wind in the trees. So that gave me the whole beginning of the movie and the sort of ironic twist at the end. In fact, that you know, the fact that the scream becomes just an effect to be used in a kind of tawdry horror film. Why don't we take a listen to that opening scene between a sound engineer and his director in the editing bay watching a cut of their latest film. The scream is terrible. What cat did you strangle to get that? The cat that you hired. That's her voice. You mean you didn't dub that? No. That's hers? Yeah. Oh, really? Yes. You know what I can't figure out? I can't figure out what a smart guy like you is still doing that shit for. Oh, come on. You do this shit. I do the sound. Oh, no, you do the shit. Oh, is that right? Yeah, like that wind in the trees. It sounds like you're whistling in the crap. That's the library stuff. We used it a million times. That is the trouble. I have heard it a million times. Now get something new. New wind. Yeah. Got it. And what about that scream? We gotta dub that. All right, you know any good screamers? I got a few ideas. Yeah, I bet you do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just worry about the scream, will you? The making of this film, it started small. It was called Personal Effects. Travolta then decides that he wants to do it and jettison the project he's working on at the time. The budget balloons. When you're looking back now 40 years... What do you remember most about the actual labor of making it? Well, the fact that we had John Travolta, uh, suddenly we had a lot more money. This small sort of personal film, suddenly I could, you know, have a big parade and spend, you know, a week shooting these incredibly difficult shots of frogs and owls. You have all the great toys that a big budget allows you to employ. When you're using a very small budget, you have to sort of find how to do it in a much kind of micro way. I had all the money I needed, so I made it as extensive and as elaborate as I could. And then, unfortunately, some of that elaborate work gets stolen while you're mixing the film, right? That's correct. A lot of the stuff we shot in the, in the Wissahickon Creek all those shots of frogs and owls and uh, that took God knows how long to do were stolen, as was a lot of the stuff of the parade when the negative was being shipped from New York to Los Angeles to be cut. The guy parked the truck. Somehow somebody got into it and stole a bunch of cans of film. So that part of the negative was gone and had to be reshot. While I was mixing the film, I had to go back and shoot the stuff in the Rissahickon Creek, and the parade at the end. Is there any point in that where you're thinking, I cannot believe we have to go back and shoot the hardest sequence of this movie again? Absolutely. I was mortified. I spent hours and hours looking through trash cans all over Manhattan, hoping that the people that had stolen, what I don't know what they thought they were getting, they had just, oh, this is just film and just dump them somewhere in a trash can. I think I went from 42nd Street all the way up to the park and all the way from 
First Avenue to uh, the West Side, looking in every dump I could find. And, of course, I couldn't find any of it. I've never heard a story like this. Well, I must say in my career, I think I've experienced every catastrophe possible for a film director. (laughs) Well, one catastrophe being the distribution of this movie. The critics aren't so kind to it. The audience doesn't show up as expected. This is all a bit mystifying to me, but how did you manage the aftermath of this picture? It was terrible, but I knew when I showed it to the executives, they were appalled because the ending is so dramatic and devastating. But Hitchcock had the same problem with Vertigo. But, of course, Vertigo is considered one of the greatest pictures ever made, so I hope that Blowout would be considered a really good picture years later, and that seems to have happened. You know, this film is set in Philadelphia where you grew up, I think, starting around the age of five. And one of your recurring trends in in your movies is this sort of voyeuristic approach. And growing up, your parents are Catholic. Your father's an orthopedic surgeon who would let you watch him operate, which is sort of unfathomable. But I also know that growing up, you would secretly follow him and record his indiscretions. Can you walk me through what that looked like? Well, uh, I was uh, put in the employ of my mother who felt that her husband was having an affair, and she felt that the only way to get divorced was to have some physical evidence of the affair. And I, I was not the first son to have this brooch to. I found out later that my older brother, she had tried to get him to get involved with creating some evidence of my father's indiscretions. But I was the one, I guess, because maybe my technical know-how, I knew how to, you know, wire a phone, and, and I was very good at nighttime photography. I basically helped her out in uh, confronting my father with his indiscretions that created the divorce my mother was seeking. And they both went on to have very happy second marriages. I certainly wouldn't have my child do it, but my mother was in a very difficult situation. She was taking a lot of pills. She wasn't strong enough to get out of this marriage herself. And she sort of used me in order to create a crisis, which I did. As a kid, you were this science wonk in the 50s. You won a lot of science fairs, built computers, and you would often rewatch Destination Moon again and again. And you said back in 1978, there are areas where there's a kind of scientific purity and an idealism and all those kinds of things that we believed in growing up in the 50s. Well, I went to a Quaker school for 12 years. You learn about integrity in a Quaker school, and you learn the value of honesty, and not in a hysterical or over-emotional way. It's just there's the right thing to do, and that's what I've lived with my whole life. I mean, I, I really know when something is not right, and it sort of was ingrained with me all those years of my Quaker education. You know when things are not right? In your life or in work? Not morally right. Not morally right. It's curious because, you know, some of the criticism you've received has been delivered on a kind of 
moral ground, your depiction of women, of violence. And yet you're talking about having this very clear compass for yourself at a young age. Did those critiques bother you? Yeah. I mean, I would give the same answer over and over again. Violently killing a woman or violently following a woman. And my answer was always the simplest. I rather prefer photographing a woman than photographing a guy walking around. Plus, a woman in a dark house, you know, holding up a candelabra invokes your sympathy more than, let's say, Arnold Schwarzenegger walking through a dark house holding a flashlight. Plus, women are beautiful, and I like to photograph them. And it was always as simple as that. You identify with the more vulnerable protagonist. Well, here's one protagonist, played by Nancy Allen, in the film Dressed to Kill from 1980. Dr. Elliot? Dr. Elliot? You really are shy, aren't you? Why don't we go to the first time you realized you wanted to direct a movie? I believe you're in college. I'm imagining 116th Street. What happens next? (laughs) I was involved in an organization at Columbia called the Columbia Players. It was my sophomore year. And uh, the big show at Columbia in the spring is the varsity show. And it's like your ticket to Broadway, basically, for composers, actors, directors, because everybody comes, you know, a lot of professional people come to see the varsity show. It has the biggest budget for a a theatrical production. And I was just there at the meeting. I was just part of the Columbia Players. There were two shows that were up for consideration. One was uh, written by uh, Steve Rawson, who was Robert Rawson's son, very intense piece of material. And the other show was by Terrence McNally, to be directed by Michael Kahn, who, as you probably know, went on to have very big careers. In these sort of political situations, everybody had made deals about, well, if you vote for this, you get to be the lead. All this stuff, politics had got on, which I knew nothing about. It got very late, and everybody wanted to go home for Thanksgiving. And they couldn't decide. The vote kept on being split. So finally, they all got exasperated. And they looked over at me, who had read both shows, and they didn't know what I felt about either one. So they used me to make the final decision, say, which one would you prefer, or which one would you vote for? And I said, the Terry McNally show, it's very funny. It was about a, a movie company making a movie in the jungle. And everybody said, great, and everybody left. That night was the first night I was to shoot the opening of the short I was making. We had a cast, but I wasn't directing it. I was just going to shoot it. So I went with my Bolecks down to the subway at 116th Street, and we were going to shoot Pan dancing out of the subway tunnel at, uh, you know, three o'clock in the morning. 
when it was deserted. And the actors were there, and suddenly the director arrived with his very intense Sicilian girlfriend and said, you idiot. And I said, what? What? And he said, didn't you realize that I was going to direct the Rawson show and you voted for the other one? And they infuriated at me and they walked off taking the cast with them. So there I was left, you know, with nothing but my camera. And I said, okay, I'm not just going to shoot this. I'm going to direct this. And that's what I did. When you decided to pick up that bollocks and say, I'm going to direct movies now. You have this line from an interview with the New York Times in 1978. You said, medicine wasn't precise enough for me. There seemed to be too much conjecture, too much human error. When you decided to make movies, did you think there wasn't going to be conjecture or human error? Well, but you're in a more of a controlled space. I mean, you know, when you're running a set, you sort of control everything that happens, and you have to adjust to the needs from everybody, whether it be the actors or the set dresser or whoever's having a good or bad day. But in a hospital, it's a lot more chaotic, and people are really dying. So uh, it's a whole different situation. When did you first realize that you could manage and observe all these egos and the interplay of them on set? When I grew up in a family of two older brothers, my father and my mother, and I was constantly sort of sensing the emotional temperature of everybody in order to uh, maneuver within the family situation. Yeah, you see that all the time, and certainly in the, in the movie business. Which part? All parts, <laughs> whether it's the, you know, the studio, the producers, the actors art directors, everybody's got an ego, and you have to be very aware of how they're affecting the whole climate of the set when you're shooting. Basically, you got a kind of incredible sandbox full of all the toys in the world. You have a certain amount of time to get it all to work together. So your job is to get it done no matter what is going on within the world you've created. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes Workflows and delivery of care were already great, but they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. 
This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. When you're looking back on your filmography, as we are, do you remember the first film that you thought, I think I have something here? I'd say Be Black Baby in High Mom. The radicalized Black Panther piece of it. Yeah. Well, I got the idea when I, you know, photographed Dionysus in 69, which was a avant-garde play based on Euripides, the Bacchae. And uh, my college roommate, William Findlay, was playing Dionysus. And it was a theater piece that involved the audience directly in the involvement of the story of the play. So I created Be Black Baby, which is essentially a theater piece. And I'd also seen a lot of theater pieces with very radical black actors lacerating the audience for being, you know, white, middle-class liberals. So that's sort of was the genesis of the idea, where they put the white audience through the black experience by being black and experiencing what a, a black goes through. The blacks were that I used, some of them were so hostile because they, you know, they thought I was nothing but a, another jerky white liberal. But they were incredibly scary, and I kept a couple of them away from the main troupe 
And when the audience is trying to escape through the elevator, and they had never seen these black guys before, even though the whole troupe had rehearsed with each other before, I introduced these incredibly hostile two black actors that literally just ripped into the whole crowd. And I was in the back of the elevator, and I could really... The producer was right next to me, and he was like horrified with what was going on. And I said, this is really working. I mean, they grabbed a hold of Ruth Holder, they threw her on the ground, and they were starting to rape her. That's when Bob De Niro arrives and arrests everybody. You know, to describe that as this is really working, which is objectively a horrifying event, it seems like only someone with your upbringing would view that chaos as something fascinating and something working. Yeah, but this is something that went on every night in Dionysus in 69. The audience was constantly engaged. And then at the end, I mean, it's like a ritual of ripping everybody apart. I mean, in Dionysus in 69, if Pentheus is able to convince somebody to go have sex with him in front of everybody on the floor of the stage, the play is over. But of course, he goes out there and tries to seduce somebody in the audience. And they go so far, but ultimately the girl rejects him. That happened 99% of the times. One night, he in fact left with the girl and the play ended. There's such a clear distinction between you moving away from documentary work in the early 60s, although you do employ split screen for the first time in Dionysus, from when you move to Los Angeles in the early 70s. And I want to go to this moment because you're on the Warner Brothers lot and Spielberg, Scorsese, and George Lucas are all, as you say, having our movies recut by the studio and badly distributed. Well, Stephen wasn't, but George was. I I went to the premiere of THX. Uh, Marty was uh, editing The Medicine Ball Caravan, which... uh, did not work out well, and I was getting fired from Get to Know Your Rabbit. <laughs> it was traumatic at the time, but we all survived, obviously. Traumatic, why? Well, you don't want to have your picture sitting on a shelf for two years. You're basically unemployable. Well, Get to Know Your Rabbit is you making a film at a studio with Orson Welles as a late 20-something Were you confident in your abilities at that point, even as the shoot was kind of falling apart? Well, I was a little disappointed with Orson because he wouldn't learn his lines. And uh, so I kept shooting until he finally learned them because I just kept on repeating the same section over and over again. Orson was just taking work as a in order to make money to finish his own movies. So he didn't really pay much attention to what he was doing. He did like the idea of being a tap dance magician instructor. And he kind of liked working with Tommy Smothers. So that all worked out very well. And he was very helpful once with, I mean, we had this guy that comes in and has to say about a whole series of lines a mile a minute. And it was an old character actor. And we did with one guy and we did take after take after take. And the guy couldn't do it. So we had to let him go. We got another guy. And we did a take after take after take. And he couldn't get the series of lines. So... Ultimately, I sort of looked at Orson and I said, what do I do? And he said, let me work with this guy. And he worked with the next one and he got the guy calmed down enough that he could do the set of lines. 
So it was instructive to watch him working and the way he had a real gentleness with actors in order to get them to do their best work. You have this quote, The thing is, you get fooled into believing you have relationships with people. It took me a long time, but I finally come to realize that your head is always available to go on the block if it makes some kind of business sense. Is that the first time you learned that lesson? Well, it was my first studio experience like that. Yes. I guess what I'm getting at is, how the hell did you keep going? Oh, please. I've had many life-altering disasters in my career. What's a disaster in your head? Uh, The reception of Bonfire of the Vanities. Well, I came on to a movie that already had Tom Hanks in it, and I thought if, if I made it as cynical and as racist as the book was, it would go the way of uh, the sweet smell of success. But you know, the basic thing I needed, I needed to go back to work. I was uh, having a very bad time in Hollywood. I was not happy. I wanted to get out of there. And this gave me an opportunity to return to New York. It was not the shrewdest decision I ever made in my life because I came on to a project that already was like miscast from the get-go. Of that time, you said, you go to work sometimes so you don't have to think. Well, you have to go to work sometimes because your, your life is in some type of emotional turmoil and the only way you can find your way back is to go to work. And that's what I did. When you went to... Berlin, after Carlito's Way came out, you sat in the audience and said, I don't think I can make a better picture than this. Where does that film land with you now? It has a fantastic ending. That chase scene is really something. And the characters are so good. Great script by David Kep, and, and some fantastic performances by Sean and, and Al and Penelope. Very strong material, but it just wasn't received particularly well. It was treated like just another gangster picture. And uh, that's when uh, when I was at Berlin, that's when it occurred to me. I said, I can't make a better picture than this. That sequence you're talking about where you're using Steadicam around the train station. Before that, Al Pacino's on the train. And there's sort of a remarkable, funny story around you trying to get this shot of him on the train. That sequence was shot from the middle of winter into the dead of summer. And Al was in that leather jacket, which worked great in the wintertime, but when we got into the depths of summer and I needed a, a shot from train to train, which is very bit difficult to do. We're, we're in two subway trains running parallel with each other. And I'm trying to get a shot of Al racing through the car with the gangsters chasing him. And you not only do you have trouble syncing up the trains in order to shoot through the windows so that you actually see something instead of posts. We spent all night going back and forth trying to get this shot, of this chase from the viewpoint of the train running parallel to Al's. Somewhere around you know, like four, five o'clock in the morning, I noticed that when we were setting up for another take that the train took off and disappeared, the one that Al was in. And I turned to my assistant director and I said, what's going on? Al's train just left. (laughs) And Chris said to me, "Uh, he took it back home. (laughs) I said, what? He took it back home. So I went back to 
home, and I went into Al's trailer, and I said, I haven't gotten the shot yet. He says, what are you doing? I've been running up and down in this train all night, you know, sweating to death in this leather outfit. How come you, what, what's going on? And I tried to explain to him the difficulty of shooting uh, these parallel trains and syncing them together. And I finally convinced him to go back, and we finally got the shot. Have you often pushed actors to the brink of taking the train home? John Cassavetes hated being put into a body cast to be blown up at the end of The Fury. I mean, he just hated it. Sean Connerly hated getting hits on him. In The Untouchables. And I had to really beg him to come back and do a second take where he gets machine gunned. He hated crawling through that blood-soaked floor. There have been instances where you basically say, please... We don't have it yet. You've got to give me another shot at it. And I think your ability to keep taking those shots, it's why you've made so much. And yet, I keep coming back to this scene from Carlito's Way that I wanted to present to you. This is Al Pacino and Penelope Ann Miller, former lovers, sitting at a restaurant, unceremoniously reunited as Carlito is released from prison trying to turn the page. Well, what about this um, club of yours? Oh, it's not my club, you know. It's, uh, I just got a, I got a piece of it. Mm-hmm. Just trying to make enough money. But who knows, with my luck, somebody's going to get shot. The cops are going to come and close it down. You know? It doesn't sound like you. It doesn't. Really? I never talked like this before. Never felt like this before. You know, it's a funny thing. This guy, this counselor in Lewisburg, Mr. Seawall, once said to me, he said, Charlie, you run out of steam. You can't sprint all the way. You got to stop sometime. You can't buck it forever. Catches up to you. It gets you. You don't get reformed. You just run out of wind. Charlie. You run out of steam. You can't sprint all the way. You can't bucket forever. Those lines, I wondered how much you felt them in your career as you continue to direct in your 70s and 80s. Well, that's, you know, it's really good dialogue. And you have to credit David Kep and the original book material. And my job is to just make it work as effectively as possible. And yet that line, you don't get reformed. You just run on a wind. Well, I'm a great student of directors. Normally their best work is in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. And it's because it's an exhausting profession. And you only get a chance to play in the big sandbox very seldom. And you have to make the most of it because you're not going to be able to hold it for long. The big pictures I did, The Untouchables, uh, Scarface, Mission Impossible, that's the big sandbox. Throughout your career, people compared your work to Hitchcock. But I like this quote you have. You said, he is the one who distilled the essence of film. He's like Webster. It's all there. 
I've used a lot of the grammar. You said that Hitchcock developed this visual storytelling vocabulary, a kind of film grammar that you believed was going to die with him until you became the one remaining practitioner that took up what he pioneered and built it into different forms in a style that you were evolving. When you stop making movies, will this style end? Do you believe you're the bookend? I think it's ended already. With the advent of streaming and these uh, big uh, digital companies buying the studios and the things that seem to be most profitable are basically intelligent soap operas that if you can extend them 10 episodes or sometimes 20, 30, get a room full of writers to keep something going, the era of the director of superstar is over. We had the, we had the control and the power to do it in the 20th century, but the whole movie-making system has now devolved in like the old studio system in which there's the financiers and it's the producers and the writers. And they're not interested in the way things look. They're interested in getting as much up on the screen and extending it as long as possible. That's where it's going. And it'll probably evolve into a new form. But what happened to beauty in cinema? I mean, they're not, they don't like things anymore. Because of the digital technology, you know, they basically bounce a light and, and just shoot with that available light all the time. And everybody sort of looks the same. They're not lit. So the, the way of creating, you know, those beautiful stars of the, you know, the 30s and the 40s and evolved with the great cinematographers we used, that's all gone because it's not economical. It takes too much time. And to do and try to explain an extensive visual sequence to, uh, you know, I guess a showrunner would be like, are you kidding? I can accomplish this with, you know, two guys talking to each other on a park bench. It's a art form that will live on forever, but its day is over. Something else will emerge. It's not going to be what we did, but a new form will emerge and artists will work through that form. But for a visual stylist, it's like they're just not being made anymore. There's no one that gives you hope? Well, Spielberg, because, you know, he's got the power in order to make anything he wants to make. But I could never have made, you know, three Jurassic Parks in order to have the power to make any movie I wanted. But Steven's always been very successful at making very commercial movies and then making very personal movies. But he's unique. There's only one Spielberg. Well, I think there's only one Brian De Palma, and I want to end on this memory here, if you could walk us through it. You're 18 years old, 1958, Radio City Music Hall, where you find Vertigo for the first time. And I think this is sort of where you fall in love with movies. I mean, that's when I saw the brilliance of visual storytelling, but I saw The Red Shoes, you know, I think when I was 16. And talk about a perfect movie and a beautiful movie and a great, great idea. Amazing, amazing. It's so interesting that so many other directors are affected by that movie. Marty's affected by it. Francis was affected by it. They all talk about The Red Shoes, so I guess it all hit us at about the same time. 
there's a great emotion in the red shoes and one strives to try to get that into your movies too. Well, I think you figured out how to do that throughout your career. So thank you for those films, this talk, and your time. Thank you. So long. our show. Special thanks this week to Susan Arostegi and Karen Stetler at the Criterion Collection and of course the inimitable Brian De Palma. To watch Blowout, Carlito's Way and more visit talkeasypod.com There we've linked to places where you can stream a whole bunch of the films mentioned in this episode. If you'd like to hear more conversations with directors I'd recommend our talks with Steven Soderbergh Chinik Sabravo Miranda July, Errol Morris, Werner Herzog, Kelly Reichardt, Terrence Nance, and Sean Baker. By the way, each of those people still making movies, even in 2021. And so long as they are, I'd like to think cinema is alive and well. You can find all those and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Clarice Guevara. Our assistant editors are Eve Gershon and Joshua Siegel. Our illustrations are by Krista Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Callie Syringus, Kaylin Ung, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with a new episode. Until then, I hope you're having a good summer. Stay safe. And so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? 
Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.